I was 29 years old when I became a senior pastor. And in the first two months as pastor of that church, as the leadership of the church, we had to remove a part-time staff member who was spiritually unqualified for what he was doing. Now, the man was quite a bit older than me, so that made it difficult to begin with. And then the circumstances were such that his family left our church under protest, claiming that the leaders had been unfair. There was an older couple in the church that treated this man like a son, and so I felt that I needed to call them and explain to them why we had made the decision that we did. Well, they had already heard the news, and when the husband answered the phone, he angrily said to me, you are going to have to answer to God for what you have done. He and his wife left our church, as did one other couple. Now, I was so young, so new at dealing with things like this, that it threw me into a major depression. During that time, I sought counsel from two Christian leaders who criticized the action that we had taken. Of course, that only compounded my despair. One of the men suggested that we had shot our wounded. And there were days that I was so downcast that I could hardly get off the couch. I remember during that time uh, meeting an, an old professor of mine. You know what he said to me? He said, in all my years of ministry, I've never had to do this. And you can surely believe that I thought, why me? Why me? That experience really shook my confidence. I thought, Lord, I've spent 10 years preparing to be a pastor, and in the first two months, this happens. And I was wondering, God, are you really leading us? Is it true that we have shot our wounded? Now, God did some amazing things for me that reinforced my confidence. In fact, to this very day, I'm astounded what the Lord did in that situation. And at the end of the message, I'm going to tell you what He did. But all of us have had times like that when our confidence has been shaken. We have found ourselves in situations where we have wondered, God, why have you placed me in this circumstance? Um, it could be a boss that we have who is so unreasonable, uncaring, or perhaps controlling that he has poisoned the whole atmosphere of the workplace. My sister had a boss like that. He was fired. The next boss, just like the first. The pressure got so great, she had to quit her job. Maybe you can't quit. Maybe you need that job and you need to live with that pressure every day in the office. It could be a neighbor who is so ill-tempered that he's always looking for a fight. And you can't move so that you can get away from him. Perhaps you've had a family member who has betrayed you. Now your family is divided and you are living with the turmoil of that in your own situation. 
I knew a couple that was forced out of their church because they were mistreated by their pastor. They came to our church, and the wife said this to me. She said, our church was our family. And for us to be treated this way and then forced out, it was like our whole family turned their back on us. Let me ask you this morning, how do we find confidence in the midst of these kinds of life situations? How do we find encouragement to to trust God? Do you know there's a whole group of psalms that were written for this very purpose? They are called confidence psalms. Here's what a confidence psalm is. It is a psalm where the dominant theme of the psalm is the confidence which believers can have when facing crises. Now, over the next several weeks, we're going to look at five of these confidence psalms. This morning, we're going to begin with Psalm 3. And I've entitled this psalm, How to Have Confidence in Threatening Times. Now, we need to understand the issue is always, who is God? Hear me carefully. The issue always is, who is God? What are the truths about God that we can count on? And David today is going to share them with us. Let's take a moment, shall we, and bow our heads together before we look at God's Word. Father in heaven... Thank you for your encouraging word. Thank you that your words were found and and I did eat them. And they became the joy and rejoicing of my heart. May that be our portion today as we come to your wonderful truth. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles to Psalm 3, and let's notice the first truth about God is that God's permission allows difficult threats. God's permission allows difficult threats. Notice how Psalm 3 begins. The superscription tells us the Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. And then David begins, O Lord... How many are my foes? Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Now the historical background of this psalm is very, very critical. David had made several wrong decisions, starting with his adultery with Bathsheba. His son Absalom became terribly bitter and vengeful. By the way, can I stop right here? The story of Absalom tells us what will happen to your life if you allow bitterness to take over. If you want to know where will unresolved bitterness go, just study the story of Absalom. Bitterness will take you farther than you ever wanted to go. And Absalom becomes the example of the bitter, vengeful person. Now the Bible tells us that Absalom was the most handsome man in all of Israel. He was also a smooth talker. He was a flatterer, a conniver. 
and he was a calculating manipulator. And he wormed his way into the hearts of Israel by making promises like a glib-tongued politician. On the appropriate day, he had himself proclaimed king, and he began a military coup d'etat against his own father. David was so caught off guard, he had to flee at once from Jerusalem to save his life. Now, this was extraordinary, extraordinarily painful, but I want you to notice, David says, there were two things that made it particularly painful. Number one, the sheer number of people who turned against him. Did you notice in verses 1 and 2, he uses the word many three times. When he says in verse 1, how many rise up against me, uh, the implication is he was shocked at all those who turned against him. If you want to know how many it was... Ahithophel, David's trusted advisor, counseled Absalom, this very night, the first night that he flees, get 12,000 soldiers, pursue him, and murder him. Absalom had 12,000 the very first night when the battle finally occurred and Absalom lost. There were 20,000 casualties on his side. That's how many rose up against David. Second thing was even more painful. His enemies were saying God had abandoned him. At the end of verse 2, they were saying there is no salvation for him in God. You know what this was? This was their excuse for piling on. They were saying this is God's will. Can you stop with me for just a moment? There's nothing more cruel than people threatening you and claiming approval from God. Nothing more cruel than that. And it's clear what was going on. They believed misfortune implied wickedness, and the wicked were God-forsaken. Since David's adultery with Bathsheba, he had had many problems that had occurred, And so that suggested to many God had deserted David. They were undermining his very trust in the care and provision of God. Would you listen for just a moment very carefully? One of Satan's greatest methods is to discourage us by suggesting God is through with us. Because of the mistakes that we've made or the sins that we have committed, Satan suggests to us that we can no longer have God's favor. And what Satan loves to do is to make us think that God now cannot possibly answer our prayers or bless us. But David knew what every Christian knows from 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's be very, very clear. God had forgiven David. He had allowed him back on the throne. He had not abandoned him. My old professor, Erwin Lutzer, one time said this. I never forgot it. He said, don't ever base your theology on your circumstances. If you do, there will be times you think God does not love you. 
That is so critical. Do not ever base your theology on your circumstances because if you do, there will be times in your life you will conclude, God does not love me. Base your theology on this book and this book alone. Why was David being threatened like this? God had a greater purpose. And why will God allow threats into your life and mine? He has a greater purpose. What is that purpose? Well, it's the second truth we learn here about God. God's purpose is that we focus on Him. God's purpose in allowing these threats to our lives is that we would focus on Him. Would you look at verses 3 and 4? But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Hey, don't you love the but gods in the Bible? Don't you love those? Here's one of them. But you, O Lord. What David does is he turns his attention from the threat to his relationship to God And how critical that is. How critical that is. When he does that, the whole tone of this psalm changes. Now there's a very very serious lesson for for us to learn here this morning. Please don't miss it. The longer we fret over our problems, the bigger they grow and the smaller God seems. But the more we focus on God instead of our problems, the smaller they become and the bigger God seems. That is such a critical, critical lesson here. David Jeremiah talks about in his church in Indiana, he had a man in the congregation who was a leader who turned against him. And the man became very critical and very angry towards him. Uh, Every Sunday when David Jeremiah would step into the pulpit, there would be that man, and he would be sitting down there with that angry, critical spirit, and, and Dr. Jeremiah would say, I would focus on him the whole time, which, you know what that did? That made his ministry absolutely miserable. And then one Sunday, Jeremiah realized this. He's only one person. There are many people in this church who are, who are my supporters. And by focusing upon him and ignoring them, he was magnifying this man in the congregation and he was minimizing his supporters. And so he decided, I've got to stop focusing on this angry critical man who has turned against me and I've got to begin focusing on all the people who are my supporters. What a difference that made. That's what you've got to do with God. We have to stop fretting about the problem and focus on God. Do you know this is the first prayer in the Psalms and it changes everything? And I don't have to tell you, prayer changes everything. In fact, as David prays to God, he teaches us some very critical things that God always does for believers. These are our resources 
and we dare not miss them this morning. First of all, I want you to notice that what God always does for his people is he shields us. He says in verse 3, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You are my glory. Now, David had used the shield many times in battle for protection. Now he says, God is my shield. When he says, Lord, you're my glory, the word glory here refers to his fame, his reputation. It is a figure of speech in which David puts his fame and reputation in the place of God, who was the source of that. So when he defeated Goliath, God allowed him to have that glory. When he defeated his enemies, it was God who gave him that fame and that reputation. When he led Israel to be a a nation of peace and strength, it was the Lord who had shielded him and gave him the glory of those experiences. Now what David is saying is, God, you accomplished that for me in the past. You will now shield me in this instance too. Notice the second thing God always does for us. He lifts up our heads. This expression in verse 3 is also a figure of speech in which the head is put for the whole person. So what David means is, Lord, you will lift me up. You have the ability to restore me to my former position. By the way, do you remember how David left Jerusalem? Sometime turn to 2 Samuel 15 and the artist here has given us an excellent description. He left barefoot. He had his head covered in shame. And an enemy was on the opposite side of the ravine who cursed him and pelted him with stones. Let me ask you, should a king walk barefoot? Should he? But David understands, here I am in shame. Here I am being pelted by rocks. I'm the greatest king this nation will ever have. It looks very, very bleak. But David knows this. God controls my future, not my enemies. And he is fully capable of lifting up my head and restoring me to my position. You know, in my first church, after I had been pastoring for several years, a father about my age came and confided this to me. He said, I was opposed to you coming to our church as pastor. On the evening that we were going to vote for you to come, I was planning to show up and persuade people to vote against you. He said, I believe I could have been very persuasive. But he said, I got sick. In fact, he said, I was so sick, I was throwing up, and I was unable to come. He said, I never get that sick. And he said, it lasted only one day. I was perfectly fine the next day and went to work. He said, God wanted you to come. I was going to thwart God's plan. And God set me aside for one day, making me sick. I was stunned. 
Can God immobilize a man for one day so that God can accomplish his purposes? You better believe he can. And apparently in that case, God was shielding me, though I had no idea what was happening. May I say something to you today? If you are a believer, God controls your future. No one else does. Please hear that. If you are a Christian, God controls your future. No one else does. And you can trust Him. You can trust Him. Now notice the third thing that God always does for us. He answers our prayers. Look at verse 4. I cried aloud to the Lord and He answered me from His holy hill. I'm reading here from the English Standard Version, and the word answered is in the past tense. This could be a Hebrew preterite tense, which means it is something that has already occurred, and I think that is the proper translation here. David is saying, Lord, you have already answered my prayers on this very first night that I have fled from my own son. How did David know God had answered his prayers and was going to deliver him? Truth number three. God's peace replaces our fears. Look at verse five. I lay down and slept. I woke again. For the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. There was no way in the world that David should have slept. He was on hard ground. 2 Samuel 17 says it took all night for all of his followers to cross the Jordan. They finally finished the crossing at daybreak. How do you sleep when you're, all of your followers, who are also under the threat of death, are crossing the Jordan River all night? He should not have been able to sleep, and then he had no idea whether 12,000 soldiers were pursuing them that very night when they were tired, disorganized, and vulnerable. No way should he have slept all that night. Would you agree with me? He should have been a nervous wreck. You know what this was? God gave him supernatural peace. In response to his faith, and he was able to sleep. The next morning, he realized God had sustained him through the most dangerous night in answer to prayer. And because God had answered his prayer by giving him supernatural sleep and protecting him, he now says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. What he's saying is, God will answer, has answered my prayers. He will do so again. Therefore, I can have peace. I need not be afraid. 
Do you know there have been examples of this, of Christians who've experienced the same thing? Stonewall Jackson was a great Civil War general who was honored by both sides. He got his name Stonewall because he was so calm in the face of some of those bloody battles in the Civil War. What you may not know about General Jackson was he was a devout Christian. All agreed he was a man of God. And one day someone said to him, General Jackson, how is it that you can be so extraordinarily calm under fire? Would you look with me at what he said? My religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God knows the time of my death. I do not concern myself about that. But to be always ready, no matter where it may overtake me, that is the way all men should live, and then all will be equally brave. By the way, notice he said, be brave, not reckless. When you know that God is your shield, the lifter up of your head, and will answer your prayers, you're not careless, but you are brave. David Livingston went to Africa to open up that continent in the 1800s. They said to him, aren't you afraid to go to that dangerous and difficult place? Look how David Livingston answered. He said, I am immortal until the will of God for me is accomplished. And the great Charles Spurgeon in his volumes on the Psalms said this, We need not fear a frowning world while we rejoice in a prayer-hearing God. Isn't that good? We need not fear a frowning world while we rejoice in a prayer-hearing God. Let me say to us today, If we are in the place God wants us to be, doing what God wants us to do, we do not need to be afraid. If we are in the place God wants us to be, doing what God wants us to do, we do not need to be afraid. And so David concludes this psalm with the last truth about God. God's promise for us is salvation and blessing. Look at verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. What God is saying to us is He's always working on our behalf. He can save us now from any trouble. He will certainly save us safely in the future in heaven. If He decides not to save us now and instead saves us safely someday in heaven... He will certainly, in any situation, sustain us no matter what we are going through. God's promise is salvation and blessing.
Let me finish my story that I opened up with. You remember I told you about the man who was very angry about our decision. When I called him up in courtesy to explain why we had done what we did, he angrily said to this 29-year-old inexperienced pastor, you're going to have to answer to God for what you've done. Four months later, he was dead. And I thought, wow, he's the one who's answering to God. A year later, his widow called me. She said, would you come over to my home? I did. After her husband died, that staff member had taken financial advantage of his widow to the tune of $10,000. She said to me, we were so close to him, we were blinded by his faults. She said, Pastor, we were wrong in the way that we treated you. If my husband were alive today, he would tell you that. Would you please forgive us? Of course I did. Didn't end there. I got a phone call after that from the staff member. He had made things right with the widow and paid back the money. He wanted to talk with me over coffee. We sat down together at the big boy in that town. He said to me, I want you to know the decision that you made was the right decision. He said, I couldn't see it a year ago, but he said, I can see it now. And I want you to know, I have no hard feelings against you. Those two conversations with that widow and that former staff member were two of the most stunning, freeing conversations I have ever had. That whole episode threatened to undo my young ministry. God had sustained me. And I could say, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. And all God's people said, That's your God. That's my God. This morning as we close and we prepare to come around the table of the Lord. I know some of your burdens. I know more of the burdens here than many of you know. I don't know all of them. But I know this is true. And I want us to conclude by affirming together our faith to the Lord by saying, God, this is who you are. And this is the God we trust. 
Would you join me? Let's say all four together. God's permission allows difficult threats. God's purpose is that we focus on Him. God's peace replaces our fears. And God's promise is salvation and blessing. Let's bow our hearts together. I know some of the burdens and threats you carry, some I don't. Perhaps like me, you have had a situation that you had closure in, and you can now see God did this for you. If that is the case, would you praise God right now? If you tell Him, thank you God, you have given me closure. But maybe you're in a situation where you have not experienced closure. And you might say, Pastor, that's great for you. I'm glad that you got closure. But I haven't. Listen, sometimes God decides to change us rather than change our circumstances. Sometimes God withholds closure because He wants to change us. He's God. And we must say, okay, Lord, if you're changing me, not those who are threatening me, I accept that. You are the sovereign God. But what God will do is He will sustain you. He will give you the resources you need so you can deal with the pressure you are under. If you can't thank Him for closure, thank Him for sustaining grace. Father, thank you today for this vision of God. Help us, Lord, today to see you as you really are. We confess that we are tempted to base our theology upon our circumstances, and that causes us at times to wonder does God even love me? But Lord, we must always come to the Word. We must always come to the Bible. And we must always see the real God as He truly is. And then when we see Him, our problems and our threats will find their proper proportion underneath His sovereign permission, His strength, His care, His sustenance, his answer to prayer. Thank you, Lord, that today by faith we can say, salvation belongs to our Lord. His blessing be upon His people. We thank you, Lord, and pray these things for Jesus' wonderful sake. And all God's people said together,